Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Uh, tonight we're going to wrap up our short study on the uh, on the Bible, and uh, the first week we we covered uh, the first week of the study we covered how we got our English Bible, and then the next two weeks of the study we covered uh, why you can trust your Bible, and uh, and tonight we're going to get to the final uh, part of the study which is what I really wanted to talk about, and I know what which many of you are, are looking forward to, is we're going to talk about translations of the Bible, and I'm going to answer that question for you right there. What is the best English Bible translation for you? And I'll answer it at the, at the very end to make you stick around. Uh, so let's go back real quickly and remind ourselves, the very first English Bible uh, was in 1382, uh, by a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. Um, he did not know Greek or Hebrew, so he translated it from the, 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 the only Bible he had at that time, which was in Latin. Um, so it was a translation of a translation. Uh, the first Bible, English Bible we ever had, that was a translation from the original uh, Greek and Hebrew was the Tyndale Bible in 1525 by a guy by the name of William Tyndale. Now, unfortunately, uh, he he's a smart guy. Uh, he knew Hebrew, he knew Greek, but he, he, he translated the New Testament. He had started on the Old Testament and got a little bit of it done, and he was, uh, he was martyred. And so he did not get to finish it. So his assistant, a guy by the name of Miles Coverdale, uh, finished that Bible and published it as the Coverdale Bible in 1535. But unfortunately, he didn't know Hebrew, so the, he had to just fill in the gaps by translating from from Latin. And then the Great Bible is just a, a just what it says. It's a bigger version of the Coverdale. And we finally get to 1560, and we get to something called the Geneva Bible. And the reason it's called the Geneva Bible is because uh, Queen Mary was the Queen of England at the time. She was a Catholic, and she ran all the Puritans and all the Protestants out of England, and they went to Geneva, Switzerland. And there they decided to create a translation of the Bible called the Geneva Bible. Now, we talked about this a little bit, but I've got something I want to get to here. This Bible was unbelievable. It really was a groundbreaking Bible. Let me give you a few of the first. It was the first translation done by a committee and not a single person. Uh, it was the first to uh, fully use for every book from Genesis to Revelation, it fully used the original Hebrew and Greek uh, for its translation. It was the first Bible to use italics to show words not in the text. You know, in English, sometimes your Bible will put in words like the and it just to make it read. And they'll put them in italics to show you that we've put them in there. The Geneva Bible is the first to do that. It was the first Bible to, to include chapters and verses in 1560. It wasn't the first Bible to use notes, but it was the first Bible to do cross-referencing. So if you've got a Bible today and it, and it has a note and says, go see this verse and go see that verse, the Geneva Bible did that 
1560. It, it essentially was the first English study Bible. I actually got a picture of it there. And you can see the verses. And over on the left, you can see on the bottom, you can see some of the notes. And you can actually see the cross-referencing. I mean, that's amazing. You know, things we buy study Bibles today, and that they were already doing that back in, in 1560. And people loved it. I mean, they, they could not get enough of the Geneva Bible. Uh, not only could they read it in their own language, English, but for the first time, using these notes and using the cross-referencing, they would act- could actually learn from it. And so it was an incredible Bible. But that brings up the question, why then was it... Re- By the way, anybody got a Geneva Bible at the house? One. Anybody else? Anybody got King James? Right. So why was it replaced by the King James? It's an odd, you know, why we, one of the things we always want to know is why do we need translations? Why are there more? And there's a lot of different reasons. Well, it turned out that this was all about politics. You would think it would be about something greater, but it was all about politics. The, the common people loved the Geneva Bible, but the church didn't like it and the nobility did not like it. And it was all because of those pesky little notes. That they put in there. You see, the Geneva Bible was published and translated and published by Puritans. And Puritans didn't believe that you ought to have these high and mighty bishops. Uh, they believed in a Presbyterian form of government where churches are just led by lay elders. And so they put that in their notes. And then the nobility, the king and queens hated it because, for example, starting with King Henry, the king was the head of the uh, Church of England. And the Geneva Bible said, that's ridiculous. There is no way that the king or queen should ever be the head of the church. And so they put that in their, their notes. So the, so, the, so the church didn't like it. The, uh, the nobility didn't like it. So the only solution was to replace it. So Queen Elizabeth I decided to do exactly that. So she authorized a Bible called the Bishop's Bible. And it was published in 1568. Now that Bible was terrible. It was not any good at all. Uh, it was a bad translation. Uh, the people that did it were not qualified for it. It was inconsistent. They, had to, they were constantly having to reprint it because of all these mistakes. So it was the Bible. If you went to church in that day, they would actually read the Bishop's Bible. But when people went home, they used the Geneva Bible. They taught their children from the Geneva Bible. They studied the Geneva Bible. So the Bishop's Bible, for the most part, was a was a complete failure. Now this brings us to 1603 and a guy by the name of King James. Now his sister was queen, I'm sorry, his cousin was Queen Elizabeth. She was known as the Virgin Queen. She never married, never had any children. So when she died, there was nobody to go to the throne. So they reached out to one of her cousins, a guy, he was the king of Scotland at the time, and he went by King James VI. And they brought him over, installed him as the King of England, and he took the name of King James I. And he reigned from 1603 to 1625. Now, he decided that he wanted a new translation for two reasons. Number one, there was a lot of different factions in the church at that time. The Puritans and, and every, I mean, it was just a lot of going on. And he wanted one translation that everybody could agree on. In his mind, if we can get one universal translation, everybody can agree on it. That's, you know, it's going to be peace in the church. So that was number one. Number two, he wanted to get rid of those pesky notes. Because remember, the king, he wanted to be seen as the head of the church. He thought it was his divine right 
to be king, and he wanted to get rid of those notes. So what he did is he decided in 1604 to authorize a version of the Bible, which we know today as the King James. And he gave them 15 rules they had to follow. Now, a lot of people don't know that, but you can go out there today and Google it. Look up the 15 translation rules of the King James Bible. And I won't read all of them here tonight, but rule number six, no notes. (laughs) He wanted those notes out of that Bible. And so he said, I don't want any to see any notes. Only if you have to have a note to explain uh, the meaning of a Hebrew word or a Greek word, that's fine. Uh, But for the most part, he wanted to get rid of the uh, notes. Now, 47, I think originally there were 54, but only 47 ended up doing it. They divided up into four or five different committees. uh, And over the next seven years, some of the most knowledgeable and educated people in Hebrew and Greek uh, began to create. It took seven years from 1604 to 1611, but in 1611, uh, the King James Bible was published. Now, when it first got published, its name was not the King James Bible. Um, that really didn't catch on until about the 1800s. This was the title page, and, and I blew it up a little bit here. So on the title page, this is what it said. The Holy Bible, containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations, diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment. That was the name of the Bible. So that's a didn't call it the King James Bible. They just they just called it called it that. Now, let me tell you, the King James is a very very good translation, but it didn't take off like wildfire. Uh, the people didn't really like it. They liked the 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 the, the language and stuff, but they loved those notes that was in the Geneva Bible. They loved that cross referencing, and this didn't have any of it. So. Again, when you went to church on Sunday, they used the King James. But most people went home, and at home they read the Geneva Bible. I think I told you a few weeks ago, if you go back to the Mayflower and the Pilgrims, they had the the Geneva Bible on the Mayflower with them. Shakespeare uh, used the Geneva Bible. It was the, the common Bible that most everybody used. So you could tell very quickly over the next five years that the King James Bible just wasn't taking root. People weren't using it like he wanted them to do. So he's the king. So he does what kings do. He just banned the Geneva Bible. He said, okay, anybody that prints a Bible anymore, you print my Bible. No other Bible. So starting about 1616, uh, nobody could print Geneva Bibles anymore. And so they just eventually kind of disappeared from the picture. And the King James became the de facto Bible of the English church. Now... I wish I could literally stand here all night and talk about the King James Bible. There are so many stories and so many interesting facts uh, involved in the translation of that Bible. Uh, one interesting thing, remember the, the, the printing press was, uh, I think, invented somewhere in the 1400s. So you're probably only 150 years, you know, they did, uh, and I don't know how those old printing presses work, but basically you had to set your blocks of letters and things, and then you press down. Well, certainly, you know, a human being had to put the letters in there. And so they made mistakes all the time. And so they had to reprint and correct mistakes. Well, probably the most famous printing error in history occurred in 1631. This is the most most famous printing mistake in history. And that is they were doing a print of the King James Bible. 
And somebody in Exodus 24, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which should have said, thou shalt not commit adultery, some idiot left out the word not. (laughs) And, of course, the people immediately called it the wicked Bible, or the adulterers. They called it the adulterers Bible. Well, the, the printers were fine. They lost their license to print. And King Charles, at the time... He tried to get them all burned. He found as many as he could and tried to burn them. There's still 11 left. There's still 11. If you own one of those Bibles, you, it is worth a whole, whole lot of uh, money. So the King James is published in 1611. There are four major editions over the years, 1629, 1638, 1760, and 1769. Uh, If you go back to the 1611, the spelling, you kind of saw it on the title page. Back then, they didn't have consistent spelling. As the years went by, the spelling got more and more consistent. And uh, if you go to the store today and you buy a King James Version, you are more than likely buying the 1769 edition. Uh, of the King James Bible. Now, as time went by, other Bibles, uh, it took a while, but in 1885, they came out with the Revised Version. In 1901, they came out with the American Standard Version. And in 1952, they came out with the Revised Standard Version. All of those, by the way, are just revisions of the King James. They're all King James based on the King James. And it wasn't until really the last 50 years that we've seen an explosion of um, of different types of translations and English translations. For example, the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, came out in 1971, the NIV in 78, the New King James in 82, the New Revised Standard Version in 89, the New Living Translation in 96, the ESV or the English Standard Version in 2001, the NET or New English Translation in 2006, and the Christian Standard Bible in 2017. So just in the last 50 years, we've really seen this explosion of Bibles. Um, the ECPA, which is an organization that puts out a list every year on the best-selling Bibles, in 2023, I don't know if y'all can read that, the number, best-selling Bible is the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, number two is the English Standard Version. Number three is the Christian Standard Bible. Number four is the New Living Translation. Number five is the King James Number six is the New King James. Number seven is the Reign of Valera, which is the Spanish uh, version of the the Bible. So, uh, by the way, until 2021, the King James Version had been been number two for decades. But just lately, the King James has started to drop all the way down to to number five, and more uh, modern, traditional versions are, are becoming kind of moving up ahead of it. Now... That's kind of the timeline for the English translation. So I want to dig a little bit deeper and kind of ask this question. Why did we need new translations? King James has been around for a long time, and it is a very, very good translation, as I said. So the, so the question is, why do we even need new translations? Well, I'm going to give you three very common reasons, three very basic reasons. The reason number one was they have discovered additional Greek manuscripts since the King James Version was published that needed to be taken into consideration. So if we go back to the King James, you got to remember the King James is published in 1611. 
So in 1611, they gathered up all, this guy by the name of Erasmus gathered up all the, the Greek manuscripts that, that, that they could find in Europe and in that area. And he basically created a, a standard Greek Bible, if you will, or a Greek New Testament. And it's known as the Textus Receptus or the Received Text. And the King James was translated from that. So they basically translated from the Greek that they had in that day. But as time went by and the, and the 1600s went by and 17, 18, 1900s, more and more and more manuscripts were discovered. So most of the newer modern translations base themselves, for example, the NASB, the NIV, the, the uh, New Living Translation, the ESV, they take into consideration not only the Greek text that uh, the King James translators have, but they've also taken in all the additional copies of the transcripts or the, of the uh, uh, manuscripts that have been found over the last 400 years. So they got a lot more information. So that's one reason we needed new translation. Another reason we needed a new translation is because there were words in the King James that are no longer being used in the English language. So I thought I'd give you a few examples. Exodus 9.3, if you read the King James, it says this, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field. There shall be a very grievous murrain, M-U-R-R-A-I-N. If you're like me, anybody got any idea of what murrain is? Nobody uses that anymore. In fact, the NLT uh, translated as a deadly plague. But if you didn't, if you were reading the King James, you would have no idea what that means. Uh, I'll give you another one, Jeremiah ten twenty two. Behold, the noise of the bruit is come, and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Ju- Judah desolate and a den of dragons. Uh, the King James translates bruit as report, and dragons, of course, as something different. Now that, by the way, that word is very, very difficult Hebrew word. And they thought it meant dragons, but as they've got more scholarship and they found more manuscripts, they know that it doesn't refer to dragons. It refers to jackals or or other types of uh, animals. Uh, how about First Kings fourteen three? And take with thee ten loaves and cracknels and a cruise of honey. Uh, cracknels are like little hard biscuits or cakes. Um, but again, we don't use that word today. Same thing with a cruise. A cruise is a jar. So these are just words that have gone out of date. They're not used anymore, and so the newer translations uh, correct them. Uh, Luke seventeen nine. does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trial not. Um, anybody thrown out a trial lately? Uh, that he, He's just saying, I think not. So again, it's just an idea of a word that we don't use anymore. Uh, Matthew 2.16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath. Well, wrath, uh, of course, just means enraged or very angry. So again, these new translations take all this into account. Now, by the way, I don't really think this is that big of a deal. Somebody might say, well, there's these words in there that nobody understands. Yeah, but if you don't understand a word, what do you do? You go look it up, right? There's no misunderstanding. If I ran across moraine or if I ran across cracknel, the first thing I'm going to do is go to Google and I'm going to look it up and say, oh, well, that means plague or that means cake or whatever the case may be. I don't think that's that big of a deal. This next one is a little bit bigger deal to me. 
And that is, not only are there words in the King James that no longer exist, there are words in the King James whose meaning has changed. And that is a little bit trickier. See, this is a bigger problem because you might read a verse and you may think, oh, I understand that verse when you really don't understand it. Because the word means something different than it did back then. Let me give you some examples. Joshua 7.1. It says, the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. Now, if you go read that, what they're actually doing is they're handling the, the, the things of the tabernacle, things that have been devoted to God or set apart for God. But it, it, it almost sounds like they're handling idols or they're handling things. Are you with me? But accursed in that day didn't mean what it means today. It meant devoted or set apart. So if you're not careful, you could misunderstand that. Uh, let me give you a couple more. Psalms 88, 13. But un, the psalmist says, But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Now today, prevent means stop somebody from doing something. Well, that would be confusing. My prayer prevents God. But see, in that day, prevent just means to go before somebody. Go in front of them. My prayer uh, comes before you, is what it's saying. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.7 Only he who now letteth will let. Well, the word letteth Today, to let somebody do something means to allow. But in that day, it actually meant to restrain. So it's almost an exact opposite meaning of what it was in 1611. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing. Is that telling me I shouldn't be careful? Well, of course not. The, the word careful back then means be anxious. Don't be anxious for anything. Don't worry. So again, it's just this idea of these words changing meaning. First uh, Peter 2.12 says, Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles in the King James Version. Well, today a conversation means the words of your mouth. But in that day it meant your whole conduct. So again, it's just a, it's a different meaning. First uh, Peter 4.5, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? He's not saying Jesus is going to judge people that are fast. That's not what, he's, that's not what they're saying there. Uh, in that day, quick mean, meant alive or, or living. So again, these are just words that have changed over time. So those are three very obvious reasons that we needed additional English translations to take into account all the Greek manuscript discoveries, uh, to, to replace uh, King James words that are no longer used, and also to replace King James words that might have a different meaning. But here's the thing. The answer isn't just as simple as that. When you, does anybody here speak two languages? Anybody? Yes? Anybody? I can't see a hand anywhere. Nobody speaks two languages? Yeah, we got a couple back here. Well, anybody that speaks two languages knows that you can't just take what's in one language and translate it word for word. Languages don't work like that. Punctuation is different. Where the verbs and the nouns and the adverbs go are completely different in different languages. So translating is never just taking a sentence in this language and just exchange it word for word. That's not translating. Translating translators aren't just attempting to tell us what the original writer wrote. They're attempting to communicate to us what the original writer meant. Does everybody see the difference between those two? There's a lot. Translating is a hard, hard, hard job. 
you've got language barriers, you've got cultural barriers, especially, by the way, that culture was 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. We've got the Bible in, in languages that nobody speaks today. Nobody speaks uh, that ancient Hebrew. Nobody speaks Koine Greek anymore. So we, we've got people learning those languages and trying to translate that into modern English, and that is a hard uh, task. Let me give you an example, and I'm going to let you be the translator, okay? Every language has idioms, right, or figures of speech. Uh, if I say, beat or, don't beat around the bush, what am I saying? Get to the point. Now, what in the world does get to the point have to do with beating around a bush? I'll never know. But when I say it, everybody knows what I meant. Uh, bite the bullet, hit the sack, pull someone's leg, speak of the devil, the last straw, under the weather, a piece of cake, couch potato. These are all figures of speech, right? Um, and, and we do them all the time. And I don't know how we learn them, but you all just know them. Nobody, you don't take an idiom class in school, right? You do? Really? Well, that seems like a waste of time, but I'm not going to go there. We, are, we all know our idioms. Okay, so tonight, I'm going to let you put on your translator hat, okay? You get to make the decisions. So you are reading some Hebrew, and in that Hebrew, you come across this idiom right here. Cover his feet. That's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. Now, you have two choices. What do you do when you run across an idiom? Do you give the literal translation word for word, knowing that if you do, nobody's going to understand what you're talking about? Are you with me? That's choice number one. Go literal. If it said cover his feet, that's what you're going to translate. And so you, you, if you do that, though, nobody's going to know what you're talking about. Okay? The second choice is I'm going to change it so that people can understand what it's saying but knowing that if you do, you are changing the words of the original. So which one do you do? Folks, that right there, by the way, is what every translator has to face. Now, the King James decided to leave it in. First Samuel 24, 4. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way, where it was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Now... If you read that, you're like, okay, what, what did he, was his feet cold? What, what was going on there, right? But the King James translators decided to leave it exactly as it was in the Hebrew, word for word. The ESV said, no, we're going to change it so you know what we're saying. And it says, Saul went in to relieve himself. So in Hebrew, cover your feet meant go to the bathroom. And you may say to me, what does cover your feet have to do with going to the bathroom? And I would say to you, what does beat around the bush have to do with get to the point? <laughs> That's why it's called an idiom. Nobody knows. But do you see the difference there? Let me tell you, that is, that is the balance that every translator has to strike. Every single translator is constantly balancing, do I go word for word, or do I change it so that they can better understand what, everybody with me? 
That's why you have different types of translations. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. But on the left is called word for word. That's called formal. Some translations are very formal. On the other end is called, uh, it's called functional. Or sometimes it's called thought for thought. But it's, it's all about readability. So if you lean more one way, it's word for word. If you lean more the other way, it's readability. Translations that prioritize the original words. In other words, they try to stay as close to the original words as they possibly can. These are known as formal translations. But when you do a formal translation, you have to sacrifice readability and understanding to some extent. Everybody with me? If you go the other way and you prioritize readability, in other words, you want your users to understand what the author meant, these are known as functional translation or thought-for-thought translations. And when you do that, you're going to sacrifice the literal words that were used originally. These are the two things that translators often... uh, Now, by the way, there is not a translation out there that is 100% formal or 100% functional. Neither one. It's always on a line somewhere. So if you look at the far left, that's word for word. And if you look at the far right, that's readability. They're all in there in between. Let me give you an example. You're going to have trouble seeing this. This is Matthew 118. This is what's called an interlinear Bible. And what an interlinear Bible does, it gives you the Greek, and then it just translates it word for word. Everybody with me? This word means this, this word means this, this word, that's all it does. If you do this, you cannot read it. So let me give you an example. This is, if you read Matthew 118, just out of the Greek, word for word, this is what it would say. Now, of Jesus Christ, the birth thus came about, having been pledged the mother of him, Mary to Joseph, before rather coming together of them, she was found in womb, having a child out of the Holy Spirit. You can't translate from Spanish to English, word for word. You can't translate English to Chinese, word for word. You cannot translate Hebrew or Greek to English, word for word. Because the verbs, the nouns, the adverbs, nothing works. Everybody with me? So nobody does that because nobody would buy it. It makes no sense. So every translation has to change it some to make it understandable. So, for example, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is probably the most formal translation in the modern English language. That's pretty much a given. If you want, in English, the most, the closest to word to word as you can get, you go with the NASB. This is what it says. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You see, even that, which is a word-for-word translation, has to change it to make it readable. If you want more readable, you go to the NLT. It says it this way. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, trust me, you don't want (laughs) word-for-word You need something, and that's what translators uh, do. Now, there is a, on the far right of that line, and we'll go back to it in a minute, there are what we know as paraphrases, okay? Now, paraphrases are, are intended to make uh, the language very, very easy to read. So we're talking about 
uh, things like The Message by Eugene Peterson, The Living Bible, The Good News Bible, things like, everybody with me? These are called, these are called paraphrases. Um, let me give you the paraphrase of Matthew 1.18. This is from The Message. It says, the birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they enjoyed their wedding night, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. That's a paraphrase. Now, by the way, I have no problem with that. It it keeps the meaning of the verse. But that's not always true. You've got to be really, really careful when you read a paraphrase. Because a paraphrase, listen to me, is not a Bible. A paraphrase is not a Bible. A paraphrase is not a translation. A a paraphrase is some man that sits down and and changes the language to to make it more readable. Now, they can be helpful, okay? Um, But you got to be very careful. Let me give you an example. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 in the New Living Translation. It says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the NLT is a translation, and it is the easiest to read translation there is. Okay? I'll point that out again when we... But it is a translation, and it stays as true to the original as it can. Now, this is the Message Bible. Look at what it says. Same, same passage. It says, Don't you realize this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in His kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Now, did anybody notice what he did? Did you notice what he left out? No mention of homosexuality, no mention of idolatry, no mention of greed, no mention of drunkenness. And you see what he added? Those who abuse the earth. That ain't in there. See, the the modern mind might like to hear that, but that ain't in the Bible. It doesn't say that. So you got to be very careful with paraphrases. See, the, the New Living Translation guards against biases by using a team of some 90 biblical scholars from all different types of uh, denominations, and, and they all collaborate. And what that does is that keeps anybody from, from getting in their own political or theological or denominational views. It makes people remain loyal to the original. But when you find you need very careful, especially when you get paraphrases that are done by one man, Be very careful because it's just one man. Nobody's holding him accountable for anything. Be very careful when you do that. Um, So what we don't want to do is one man putting the Bible in his own words. So I'm not going to tell you don't read them. I'm just saying don't mistake them for being more than they are. Okay? They're not a Bible and they're not a translation. So a lot of times what you'll see on the Internet is something like this. On the far left is formal, which is word for word. On the far right is functional, which is readability. So you'll see over on the left, you'll see like the NASB, the King James, the New King James, the ESV. And on the right, you'll see like the NIV, the uh, 
the NLT, the Net Bible, things like that. So that can kind of tell you, if you're looking more word for word, you'd be in this group. If you want more readability, be in this group. Or, or sometimes you'll see something like this, word for word, thought for thought, and then over on the far right are, are paraphrases. So not what I'm trying to get across to you guys is not every Bible is the same. Not every Bible has the same purpose, okay? And, and I don't know if you know this, but did, did you know that every single translation has a reading level assigned to it? I didn't know that. Did you know the King James is rated at a 12th grade reading level? The uh, ESV is a 10th grade. The NIV, 7th or 8th grade. Uh, the New King James is 7th. The uh, New Living Translation is 6th. Uh, all the way down to the NIRV, which is a New International Reader's Version, a third grade level. So, and by the way, the New International Reader's Version, do you know what its purpose is? Its purpose is to t- put it into people who are learning English as a second language. Makes a lot of sense, don't it? Somebody comes over from another country, they're trying to learn English, you want to give them a Bible, you give them the most simplest Bible you can, but that's still a Bible. And so that's what the NIRV is. And by the way, you also have to remember that there are cultural differences even between English-speaking countries. I've got a friend that I work with. He lives over in the U.K. And, and, you know, I'll say something about supper, and he says something about tea. And I said, sweet tea? He said, no, we're going to tea. I know, what kind of tea are you going to have? And he's like, no, tea is supper, right? So... So some translations, like the New International Version, tries to be culturally neutral. But the New American Standard Version was created for Americans. So, so again, that even that comes into play. What are some other differences in English translations? And i got to pick up here very quickly. Uh, there, there, we talked a couple weeks ago about variants. Uh, you remember that I said that um, there's about 25,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament in the original uh, Greek. And uh, actually about 5,000, I think, in the original Greek and about 20,000 in in other languages. And sometimes when people are making copies, they make mistakes. And so these these people that put all these, these together have to decide, well, you know, what if you have two copies? And on one, there's a word, and another one, there's not a word. Well, you have to make the decision. Do I leave it in or do I take it out? So sometimes what you'll find is in some of the newer translations, like the ESV, uh, they'll leave a verse out because it's not in the older copies that they have. Um, and again, it's a, it's a lot of hard decisions for these guys to make. But here's what I want you to know. When they leave something out, it's not a conspiracy. When they leave it out, it's not because they're trying to change. It's because they're just trying to do their very best to be faithful to the original. Let me tell you, I'll I'll talk about this in a minute, but these guys do have an incredibly hard job, and and they do the very best they can. Sometimes you'll see things like this. This is Colossians 1-2. If you go to BibleHub.com, which is a a place I use all the time, you can type in a verse. It'll give you every translation of that verse. And you'll notice that in the King James, in the New King James, that verse ends with, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But that ending is not in the older uh, copies. And so the, the newer translations like the ESV, the NASB, will leave, that, um, will leave that off. Sometimes they'll leave out a whole verse. I took a picture of my Bible. I use the ESV. 
And uh, this is Luke 17 on the left, and you'll notice there's a verse 35, and then there's what? Verse 37. There is no 36. Now, what they did is they put it down in the footnote, and they said some manuscripts have verse 36 in here, but they tell you about it. So they're, they're giving you the best of both worlds. They're saying, look, we don't think it belongs in there. We think it was a scribal error, but Here's a note, just in case. By the way, and I mentioned this about a month ago, that same verse is in Matthew 24, 40, and, there's, and, and, and everybody agrees it should be there, so it doesn't change our doctrine at all. One more quick thing. Uh, you'll also find differences in translations because words have different meanings. Let me give you this one. This is a great example. Exodus 20, verse 6. The King James says, And showing mercy, the, the Hebrew word is hesed, unto thousands of them. The NIV says, but showing love, same word, hesed, to a thousand generations. And then the, e- the ESV says, but showing steadfast love to thousands. And then it puts in a footnote. And this is a great example. Now, you, the word hesed is, is translated mercy, love, and steadfast love. Why? Because in Hebrew, it can mean all those things. It's not, it's not Hebrew. It has, it can mean mercy and kindness and compassion and instead, it can mean all of those things. By the way, even the King James, if you go to the King James and you look up that word hesed, sometimes they translate it as love. Sometimes they translate it as mercy. Sometimes they translate it as kindness because it can mean all of those things. And the other one there, notice that the King James says he shows mercy unto thousands. The NIV says a thousand generations. Well, which is it? Well, in the Hebrew, it can be either one. See, in the Hebrew, it can mean either one. So the ESV, notice what it does. It puts a note in there, and it drops down, and it says, or to the thousand generations, because it could be either one, the way the Hebrew is written. Let me tell you, when you see a difference, and listen, the, I have read on this, I've read books on this, I've studied this. When you see differences, there's always a good reason. There's no conspiracies going on out there. These are godly men and, and women who are making these translations. In fact, that leads us to this. Can we trust the translators? So here's my question. How many of you here speak, write, or read Greek? How many of you here speak, read, or write Hebrew? So you've got to trust somebody, right? Nobody here can read it in the original language. You've got to trust somebody. So what do you do? Well, you can certainly trust those guys that are dead that translated the King James. Certainly you can trust them. But here's the thing. We live in a, tech, a world of technology where you don't just have to have blind faith. Look them up. Do your homework. For example, I went to the ESV.org, and you can find everybody that's on the committee. You can find their philosophy, and you can read endorsements for them. So, for example, Bill Mounts. This is one of the translators uh, from the uh, ESV. Super impressive guy. Been married to his wife for 40 years. You can look at his statement of faith. He'll tell you what he believes about Jesus, about God, about the Holy Spirit, about the Trinity. He's got a blog. You can read it. You can find everything you want to know about Bill Mounts. Now, let me tell you what you'll find. You'll find out he's a godly man. He's a godly man. You can look at their translation philosophy, and you'll notice they're, they're trying to be more word for word. 
They're not trying to be easy reader. They're trying to be more word for word. That's their philosophy. And if you want to know who endorses them, go look. John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Francis Chan, Matt Chandler, Joni Erickson Tata, Max Locato, Al Mohler, David Platt. There's three times that many. Look them up. There's no reason to be lazy. You, if you really want to know, can I trust that translation, do your homework. Because you've got to trust somebody. All right, y'all ready? Which translation is best? Well, before I answer that question, i got to say this. When you ask which translation is best, you're really asking the wrong question, Okay? Because they're not mutually exclusive. Let me give you an example. If I said you got a telescope, you got a microscope, and you got a camera, which of those gives the truest and best perspective? Is that a valid question? No. I mean, if you want to see a star, look at a telescope. You want to see a, a microscopic uh, amoeba, look through a, a, a microscope. You want to take a picture of your grandkids, use a camera. It's, it's the wrong question. Well, but see, none of those eliminate the need for the others. They're all good and they're all useful if they're used in the right context in the exact same way. Different translations are going to have their strengths and they're going to have their weaknesses. They're not competing with one another. They're trying to complement one another. And the great thing is we live in a day and age where I've heard people say, well, I've got, I've got an ESV and I've got an NLT and a King James and all these. I've got all those too, and they're, they're on this thing called a computer. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to spend any money, and you can have every translation right there at your fingertips. It, it's an incredible, incredible thing. Listen, do you want the tradition and the beauty of the King James? Then by all means, use the King James. Brother Bill is a King James guy, okay? He's a godly man, let me just tell you. If you want the beauty and the tradition, you are, then by, use the King James. It is a great translation. If you, if you want to step away a little bit from the archaic words like these and thous and, and, and all of that, but you want to keep the flow and the structure of the original King James, then go to the new King James, because it keeps the same flow, the same structure. It just changes a few of the words to be more modern. It is a great translation. Do you want to be literal? The most literal modern English that you can find, that's the New American Standard. If you want a little less literal and a little more easy to read, that's the ESV. That's what I like. I'm an ESV, uh, ESV guy. Um, but everybody's different. I think Pastor Henry, I think, where did he go? I think he's uh, New King James. I think uh, Chuck, where's Chuck? Chuck, I think, mostly does what? New Living? New Living Translation. Four different people get up here and preach in four different versions. Listen, they're all good. There's nothing wrong with any of them. You want something middle of the road between word for word and readability? The NIV, the CSB. Both of those are very good translations. They, they kind of land right in the middle of the road between word for word. And, and if you want the easiest to read, you want the New Living Translation. It is the, by far the easiest to read. Listen, if I was giving a young person a Bible today, a, a, a teenager, a middle schooler, uh, somebody, I would give them a New Living Translation. Why? Because I want them to read it. <laughs> I don't want them to open it up and say, man, I don't understand that, and set it down. I want them to read the Bible. 
Now, I would hope, by the way, as they get older and they grow and mature, that they would move more away from those into more of the study Bibles, like the ESV and the New King James and other types of Bibles. Are you with me? But starting out, I would give them the New Living Translation. Mark Ward says this. He's a guy on YouTube, by the way, if you're interested in translations and all this stuff. He's got a great channel, got a lot of really good stuff. He said this. English speakers are looking for the wrong thing when we look for the best. Instead, we should be looking for the useful. Which is the most useful for preaching? Which is the most useful for evangelism? For reading through in a year? Which is conducive to close study? How about reading to kids for memorization? I I love that. Find the one that fits what you want to do. If you just want to read every day, then get the one that's easiest to read. If you want to study, get a more word for word. You, you can f- figure out what you want to do. I know one person, in fact, Mark Ward said this. He's a, he, he doesn't use the King James every day, but he said when he taught his kids the Lord prayer, he taught it to them out of the King James because it flows and it's so beautiful and easy to, are you with me? Nothing wrong with that at all. So, with all that said, I knew you were going to make me answer that question, okay? So, here is the answer to this question. You ready? The best English Bible translation for you is... Listen. That is true. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Let me tell you, God, I don't care if it's the King James and that old English or the NIV or or the NLT. God can take the Word of God off of that page and change your life. He does that. It's It's not the words on the page. It's the power of the Spirit using those words on that page. And what what matters more than anything is that you read it. So find the Bible that you like the best and read that Bible. And don't let anybody uh, talk you out of that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for uh, just for preserving your word as you promised both in the Old Testament and the New. That the word of God will stand forever. Jesus said that one not, not one dot or not one tittle, not one mark will pass away. Till all is fulfilled. You promised to preserve your word. And what a blessing we have in our generation. Blessed like no other generation before us. To have the Bible at our fingertips in so many translations. We can listen to it. We can have it read to us. We can, uh, we can choose readability or functionality. We got so many choices, God. What an incredible, incredible blessing. God, help us not to waste it. Help us not to waste it. Help us, God. Make River of Life a people of the Word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.